I would invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 as we consider the first commandments from the word of the Lord. Before reading from God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our God, we acknowledge that you are the transcendent, holy, majestic one who reigns and rules over all. We thank you for that work of sovereign grace in which you have drawn us to yourself and made us your children. What wonder and awe that you would condescend in such goodness, kindness, mercy, and grace to save those who had nothing but disinterest and hardness toward you, wickedness and rebellion within their hearts. We pray that our time together in your word each Sunday when we gather would serve to spur us on toward our heavenly home would remind us of who we once were, but who we now are in Christ Jesus, cleansed and purified in Him, and that we would, with greater zeal, encourage one another all the more as we see that wondrous day approaching. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll begin in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The word of our God, you may be seated. As we continue to work our way through the Ten Commandments in our studies through the book of Exodus, it will be critical for us to be reminded of the context of the law of the Lord. The prologue that we talked about last time is absolutely foundational, not only to our understanding of the law of God, but to our application of God's law. The Lord gives His law to a redeemed people. He has already delivered the children of Israel out of the land of slavery, out of the house of bondage. They have been made recipients of His covenant of grace. Therefore, this is how they are to live. And so, it is always the indicative of God's deliverance that is followed by the imperative, the commands that come afterward. And this context of the law of the Lord is the same for the believer in Christ. The law of the Lord serves to reveal our hearts, to continue to show us how far short we fall of honoring and obeying the Lord God. And so, throughout the Christian life, the law continues to drive us to Christ Jesus. And now, once we are in Christ and rest in Him alone for salvation, the law serves to frame our way of life. And so, it is grace that precedes and grace that motivates us toward obedience to our God and King. And so, let's consider tonight the first commandment of the Lord and how this command should frame our life. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, let's remember that one of our principles for rightly understanding the commandments and applying the law of the Lord is to consider what is forbidden and what is required. And so, first this evening, what is forbidden? What is forbidden in the first commandment? Well, in a word, what is forbidden is idolatry. It is the worship and service of anything or anyone other than the Lord God. If you've been in Pastor Williams' class on Sunday mornings on the doctrine of God in the chapel during our educational hour, 
you know that he spent some time talking about the oneness of God, that God is in a category unto himself. Now, the reason why we are to have no other gods is because there are no other gods. The Lord is not saying, you shall have no other gods before me. I want to be the primary of all the other gods that you worship. But there are to be no other gods before my face, for there are no others in existence. Any other god is simply a fabrication of our own imagination. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44, verse 6, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. 1 Kings 8.23, King Solomon professes, there is no one like him, no one who compares to him. In 2 Kings 19, King Hezekiah prays, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And so the basis for this commandment is the reality that the Lord alone is God. Now, we know that the children of Israel lived in a world in which polytheism was rampant. There were both regional deities and there were deities that were worshipped to believe that they reigned over different spheres of life. There was the pantheon of false gods that existed in the land of Egypt from which the Lord delivered His people. This is important. You'll remember, the Lord delivered His people not only from slavery in Egypt, but He delivered them from false worship a false worship that they were tempted to and, in fact, engaged in. And in those ten plagues poured out upon Egypt, the Lord exposed the impotence of those false gods as He defeated them one after the other. And then later, in years ahead, when Israel enters the land of Canaan, they will be surrounded by more false worship as the pagan nations have created gods who they believe rule over different areas of life. There is Baal and Ashtoreth, those gods of fertility and life. There is Chemish, who was worshipped in the land of Moab. There is Dagon, who was worshipped in the region of the Philistines near the coastal areas, the god of water and grain, and of course there were others. The Scriptures are very clear about the powerlessness of these false gods, that those who worship them will become like them, become like them in their foolishness, in their futility, and in their own powerlessness. Listen to what we read in Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, and feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. G.K. Beale remarks, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. And so, to those who revere false gods, they resemble them to their ruin. To those who revere the true God, 
they resemble him to their restoration. In Isaiah 44, the ironsmith exerts great energy and effort to forge an idol. He takes the ore and he purifies it. He labors, he sweats, he toils to the point of exhaustion. But that idol cannot feed him to renew his strength. The idol cannot even give him a drink of water to quench his thirst. The carpenter draws out plans of some false image that he's going to create. He cultivates the best cedar within the forest while the rain brings growth. He cuts it down and he drags it into his workshop and he cuts it up into different pieces. Some of it he uses for wood on his stove to cook his bread and his meat. Some he cuts into pieces and throws it into the hearth to warm his family on a cold night while another piece is carved into that false god, an idol that he falls before and worships, looking to it for deliverance. It is vanity. It is utter foolishness to worship something that is made by the hands of the worshiper. Now, we might wonder to ourselves, why would this even be a temptation for the children of Israel? If they have the real God, the only true God, the powerful one who has spoken and his word is clear, the one whom they have seen portray before them these mighty acts of judgment and deliverance, the one who has provided each day, giving them manna to eat and water from the rock, later in life they can reflect upon this majestic display of power and holiness and righteousness from Mount Sinai as he gives the law to his people. They had all of the evidence in the world that God was God and that He was their God, that He rules over all, that He cares for them. So why were they tempted toward idolatry? And why, in fact, do they fall into the wickedness of idolatry? Well, you see, the land of Canaan that they are about to enter requires them to depend upon the Lord for provision. Yes, it is a land that's flowing with milk and honey, but without the needed seasonal rains, the crops would die, the livestock would suffer, trials and hardship would be significant in their lives, and their life could be in jeopardy unless the Lord provided. And so when they look around to the neighboring regions, and they see those and other people groups who are worshiping these false gods, and those seem to flourish. They seem to have comfort and ease of life while they are the ones who struggle with hardship and trial. And the heart begins to wander, and the mind begins to stray. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm missing something? What if God is not all that I have been told? I better cover all of my bases just to be sure. You see, what all of these false gods had in common was that they were worshipped for their perceived ability to provide life. And Israel was enticed because they did not trust in the Lord to provide life. But you see, what all of this presupposes is a very important question. What do we mean by life? Is life simply material and physical existence upon this earth for 80 or 90 years if we're fortunate? Is life just about the greatest amount of ease and comfort and prosperity and experiences that I can surround myself with? 
Or is life something else? Is it something deeper and richer and fuller and eternal in nature? And this is the temptation that the psalmist faces in Psalm 73. You might remember that psalm well. The psalmist looks to the prosperity of the world. He sees their ease of life and their comfort. Everything seems to be going so well for them. They're healthy. They're fit. They're constantly posting on social media all of their wonderful meals out. Children that are always compliant. Experiences that they enjoy together. And there's envy. And there's doubt and questioning. Is it really worth it? If following the Lord brings these results that I'm experiencing in my own life, then perhaps I'm starting with the wrong God. Now, in our own time, we may not carve images, of course, out of wood or forge them from the furnace and pay homage to them, but we are just as tempted toward idolatry as the children of Israel. Martin Luther's catechism says, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make either God or idol. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question and answer 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word, to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Did you notice the key words in both of those catechisms? Trust, reliance, that resting of the heart. The first commandment is all about worship, and worship is never a matter of mere peripheral obedience, but it is a matter of the heart. Instead of trusting in the Lord alone, instead of granting to Him the loyalty that He deserves, idolatry is sort of like a diversified portfolio, looking to something in creation to provide what only the Creator alone can provide. And so, this first commandment, like all of the commandments, is after our heart, and idolatry is the matter of the heart. You're familiar with that phrase from from Calvin who said that the heart is a perpetual factory of idolatry, pumping them out one after the other. And our hearts are so wicked that they will take even the good things of the Lord and elevate them to ultimate things, possessions, experiences or activities, relationships with others, our career, children, and more. And so we elevate them within our hearts because we believe that they can give to us significance or comfort or security or value or fulfillment or worth. It could be political activism. It could be ideologies. It could be philosophical systems. It could be even theological systems that are cognitive alone. But the common thread is these are all things that become more important to us than the living God Himself things that we trust more than we trust God, things that we love more than we love Him, things that we think about more than Him, and our hearts can go quickly astray when those things are threatened. Anything that you look to to give you what only the Lord can is idolatry. 
David Powlison, in his wonderful article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, asks, how can you begin to discover the idols of your own heart? How can you uncover your false loves and desires? Well, where do you reason to yourself, if only I had that, then my life would be full of meaning. Then I would be secure. Then I wouldn't worry. Then I wouldn't be anxious. Then I would be content. And if you don't have such things, you become frustrated, anxious, restless. Life perhaps isn't even worth living. It's full of meaninglessness. It's incomplete in some way unless I can have that thing. What do I believe will give me security, comfort, and stability? When I have nothing else to think of, where does my mind go? Someone has said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. Where do your thoughts effortlessly go when there is nothing else demanding of your attention? What do you think about more than anything else? What brings you joy when you possess it or creates agitation if you don't have it or it's threatened? Pallison goes on, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? To whom or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? How you answer questions like this will reveal whether you serve God or idols, whether you're looking to Christ for salvation or some false Savior. But I think there's more. I think another subtle way in which we might commit idolatry is by conceiving of God in a way that is contrary to His nature a way that is contrary to the way that He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And so, you'll hear people say things like, well, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God that you Presbyterians talk about. Or my God would not bring such things into someone's life. My God would not bring such horrific things into this world. But this is nothing more than creating a false God. This is failing to listen to who He is as He has revealed Himself to us, and it's arrogantly presuming that I can make God into my own image, that I can make Him more accessible or palatable to my expectations. Now, we're probably not quite that crass in our own lives, but think of it like this. When we grumble and complain about our circumstances, about the people in our life, about our jobs, about the weather, about the traffic… I'm leveling an indictment against God who put those things in my life. I'm elevating my own comfort and ease of life above those trials or inconveniences that He might bring. I want to make God to be someone other than who He is and what He's doing because I don't trust, I don't rely, and my heart is prone to wander. Our larger catechism in speaking of the sins forbidden in the first commandment talks about ways in which we might omit or neglect certain things about God, embracing some false opinion about who He is, which can lead to things like failure to trust, 
being filled with despair, discontentment, or impatience towards circumstances, even complaining about the daily hardships of life, making your displeasure known to Him. These are all ways that undermine the trust and reliance that we should have upon our God. And so there are many, many ways in which we might violate the first commandment. So how can we grow in our obedience to the Lord, obedience toward the first commandments? How can we grow in our heart's desire to honor the Lord in keeping this commandment? Well, that brings us to the second thing to think about this evening. What is required? What is required in this first commandment? And so if idolatry is forbidden, then we could say that worship and service of God is what is required. I think much of the Christian life is learning to put off and put on, learning to identify those things that belong to our former way of life, to who we were in Adam, and learning to walk in newness of life according to our union in Christ Jesus. And we can think of all of the ways in which the heart is led astray and tempted toward idolatry. It's not a matter of simply suppressing those things that are false, but it's a matter of filling the mind and heart with those things that are true and right and noble and excellent and praiseworthy, as we read in Philippians 4.8. It's that phrase that we borrow from Thomas Chalmers, it's that expulsive power of a new affection. It is dwelling more frequently and more deeply upon the majesty and the splendor of our God. It's meditating upon the beauty of Christ and what He has done to save you. It's growing in your understanding of the doctrine of God, which should never be a mere cognitive exercise, but something that leads you to grow in love and adoration toward Him. And again, this is where our larger catechism in 104 can really help us think through the charge to devote ourselves to Him, thinking of Him at every point in your life, honoring Him as the exalted one, believing Him at His Word, trusting Him with all the things that He brings into your life, submitting to His will, calling to Him in praise and thanksgiving, being watchful, careful, mindful to please Him as you walk in humility before Him. There is so much that this commandment calls us to do We could think of it as this, cultivating a heart of devotion, cultivating that trust and reliance and rest upon the Lord. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, creates this image, this image of gold. And when all of the musical instruments play, and you can ask Kay what those instruments are, everyone is supposed to bow before them. That you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused because they will not violate the first commandment. They're not arrogant or hateful or spiteful in their response to the king's edict, but they respectfully explain to him that they will not serve a false god. They do not fear the king's decree to be cast in the fiery furnace because they know that their god can deliver them. 
But even if he chooses not to, that will not change who God is, and it will not change their devotion to him. Because their love for the Lord is not contingent upon their circumstances of life. And so for them, it's the fear of the Lord that drives out all other fears. It's the fear of the Lord that makes even the possibility of dying in a fiery furnace nothing compared to the privilege of honoring their Savior. Psalm 56, verse 3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so as we grow in our devotion to Him, you see, we're growing in our love, our adoration, our desire to worship Him with our whole being. We are in awe that this most powerful and holy and righteous God would care for us, that He would tend to our needs, that He would preserve our life, that He would send His Son to die for us while we were lost sinners, that God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He became poor, that you through that poverty might become rich. And so as you grow in your devotion to Him, well, that will be reflected in your life more and more as you trust, as you submit joyfully to His will. When we speak about the will of the Lord, theologians have this helpful way of differentiating between the will of God as it is revealed in Scripture, and so we want to be students of God's Word, growing to understand the teaching of the Word of the Lord, that we might be submitting joyfully to His will as it has already been revealed to us. But we can also speak of God's decrees, His decretive will, those eternal purposes that have been fixed from all of eternity past. And there should also be that joyful submission to whatever comes to pass, both in world history and in my own life. And so we trust Him because we know that He has created all and sustains all. You trust Him because you know that His power is sufficient for all things. You trust Him knowing that you can submit to His providential leading and governing because He is full of wisdom. Calvin said, much of our failure to keep this commandment comes because of our failure to apprehend the majesty of God. And so this command calls for me to think of God first and foremost above all else, to look to be guided by His Word more and more at every point in my life, for His Word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. You really cannot think too much of Him. You cannot ascribe to Him too much power and wisdom and love and mercy and greatness. In those early years of parenting, I can remember young children getting fixated, fixated on wanting to do something their own way, 
or fixated upon just getting what they want. A fixation in and of itself is not a bad thing. We can be fixated and ought to be so upon the Lord, consumed with Him, with the wonder of knowing Him and calling Him our own. Well, let's think here as we close for a few moments about some concluding thoughts here. First is to think of the foundational nature of the first commandment. Everything else flows from this commandment. This commandment is first for a foundational reason. All sin comes down to disloyalty to God. All sin is putting something else before Him. Someone has said that the first commandment determines everything else that follows. In it, God defines Himself, establishes His identity, and His right to speak commandments for us to obey. And so the first commandment is foundational. But another important thing for us to keep in mind is the fulfillment of the law by our Savior. Jesus himself said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so as we fail daily, regularly, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are to continue to see our need for the faithfulness of our Savior who did obey perfectly on our behalf. And as we look to the life of Jesus, we are to seek to emulate the great love and devotion that He had for His Father in heaven. You might remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus is having that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, telling her about her need for the salvation that He alone offers. His disciples return from buying food in the city, and they urge Jesus to eat. And He says to them, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. It's really a remarkable statement that captures the heartfelt desire of Jesus to live for the will of His Father in heaven, that just as food grants life Just as food preserves and sustains for Jesus, it is the will of His Father in heaven that drives Him in life, that sustains Him in all that He does, that brings Him pleasure and joy. And so it's important for us to keep in mind that while we are in Christ Jesus and we are freed from condemnation to slavery and to sin, we are not to use that freedom to presume that we can live our life any way that we please. 1 Peter 2 tells us to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes this argument that you once were slaves to sin, bound in captivity, and as slaves only able to sin. But now you are free in Christ but you are bondservants, as it were, to righteousness, slaves to the living God. Michael Barrett writes, the purpose of the first commandment is to obtain exclusive allegiance to Jehovah. The Lord will not tolerate divided worship. He must be the sole object of devotion. This commandment addresses every manifestation of our worship obedience, and submission to Him. It is only as He occupies His rightful place in the heart of His people 
that they can hope to live right in other areas. If this is not right, then nothing will be right. And one final thing. As you think about the commandments, the scope and the depth of each one of them, they are not meant to frustrate God's people with petty restrictions, but they are meant to help guard our hearts as we grow in our love for the Lord God. And we should not think of the law as mere moral duty, but think of it as a wondrous privilege of being made a recipient of God's grace. It truly is a gift from God to be enabled to know Him as your God. It is a joy and a delight to call Him by name as a redeemed child of the Lord. In a sermon I was reading this past week, the pastor writes, Consider this marvel that the living God has turned to you, Christian, weak and broken sinner that you are, and called upon you to sing the music of the gospel before the entire world. His electing grace has sovereignly found you and made you His own. And so you are an adopted child of the King. If you are looking to Christ, trusting in Christ, resting in Christ alone, What joy that you can respond by lifting up your hearts to sing of your love for Him. And what a delight that we do so each Sunday when we gather, lifting our hearts and our voices to Him, singing to our great God, singing to the immortal, invisible, the God only wise. May God be pleased to take the truth of His Word and to write it upon the hearts of those who are His.